Hey everyone, excited to be back with you and continuing in our series, The Great Awakening, Living Life in Light of Revelation. And what we've been saying is that Revelation or the apocalypse is not meant to frighten, but it's meant to encourage, regardless of what much of our, many of our experiences have been if you've grown up in the church. Uh, the word apocalypse, though, it, it simply means unveiling, opening the door so that you can peer in and, and see that things are bigger than they seem. So the book of Revelation was meant to remind John, the, an early follower of Jesus, and the early church, and you and I, that regardless of, of military or political might or threat, things are bigger than they seem. They're bigger than ideologies that come and go. Well, last week we looked at chapter four of Revelation and the, this amazing image of, of a throne in heaven with 24 elders and four creatures all focusing their attention and worship toward the cosmic throne. And, and by cosmic throne, I simply mean the throne that is above all other thrones, above space and time, and eternally secure. At the throne, we find the control room, you might say, of, of all of creation, past, present, and future, and nothing happens without the one on the throne knowing and ordaining it. He sees and he knows. And I, I hope that brings comfort. That's what it's meant to do. Uh, as I've mentioned many times before, uh, a revisiting of this image, this reality, a, a daily placing of ourselves in this story at the throne of worship, where all creation was meant to worship, the less likely we are to be characterized by fear and anxiety at a shifting political world, social landscape that we find ourselves in often. The more we are transfixed or are caught up in the worship of the one on the throne, the less likely we are to follow after lesser gods, to, to waste uh, time in, in meaningless pursuits, as the hymn says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Well, this week we look closer. As, as I've mentioned before, the ongoing invitation of Revelation is to look. Look to heaven, which is closer than you might think. Look to the throne room, full of worship, where all of, all of the faithful throughout history and all of the created order give their creator proper worship. Look to the throne, bursting with light and, and rumblings of thunder and, and images of power. And today, we're invited to look at the one at the center of, of these scenes, the, the center of the throne room. As we take in all this imagery, I mean, you mean, what would you expect to see at the center of this worship? How will it compare to the power of the emperor in John's day, the powers that we think of today? How will the one on the cosmic throne compare to those who we follow and, and lift up as important and powerful? Well, today we look at Revelation, and we're, to start, we're just going to look at Revelation 1 to 6. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep, John says. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What a powerful, powerful image. Even if we do not take it, uh, its meaning at first 
to, to seem overly powerful or, or take it literally. It's very powerful. What, what is the scroll, the seals? Why is John so upset? Why does the lamb have the power to open these seals that no one else can? And as we'll see, why, why does it solicit so much worship? It seems pretty important. The one on the throne exploding with light and power holds a scroll with, with words written on, in, in front, and on the back. In, in, in ancient times, scrolls held the orders of the king or important people, the, the rules of the king, the judgments of the king. In Revelation, as we will see, this scroll holds God's judgments, good and bad, for his creation. Theologian Robert Mounts says it this way. He says, the scroll contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. Now, we, we've seen this kind of image before in, in Scripture. In Ezekiel, the prophet sees a similar vision to that of John in Revelation 4, a great throne bursting with light and the four creatures worshiping around the throne. And the one on the throne gives Ezekiel a scroll written on both sides. In Ezekiel 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And Ezekiel is told to take it to the people of Israel who are already in exile, who've already had some bad news and are wondering, what does God have to say? And he says, speak the words of God's judgment concerning their idols worship, destruction that's coming, the wrath of God, but also speak the message of restoration and fulfillment of promises that I have for them. And ultimately the promise of, of his presence among them and his ability to restore life even out of death. What all of Israel was anticipating after they had fallen away and what all of creation anticipates now is God showing himself and fulfilling his promises of new creation. Of, of, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, revealing our true citizenship in his eternal city. The Apostle Paul alludes to this in Romans 8, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Do you sense that at times? Later in verse 23 of chapter 8, Paul says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Listen to those words, groaning. We're eagerly awaiting. These are words that I definitely associate myself with at times. All of creation longs for the promises of the gospel to be, to be revealed, fulfilled, realized. And, and we get the sense here in Revelation 5 that we are on the cusp of, of seeing just how is he going to do it. All of creation looks with bated breath, looks at these scrolls and wonders when and how. Here is God's plan, and it's, and it's sealed with seven seals. And we recall, meaning it's completely sealed. There, there's no breaking in. In verses two and three, it says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And this causes John to weep. And the word in the Greek is passionate weeping. Everything's falling apart. The cry of the early church, the cry today, is Lord Jesus quickly come. The cry of revelation is Lord Jesus quickly come. We hear this over and over. Bring your justice, bring your rule, bring your redemption. 
The seals on the scrolls in, in the ancient world were, were created by, by dripping hot wax on the edge of the scroll and, and then pressing a ring or a signet into it to symbolize who it belongs to and who has the right to open it. And so seals guaranteed that the right person opened the scroll, that, that it made it to its rightful owner. And for the moment, it appears here in Revelation 5 that there's no one to do that. So John weeps because no one's found worthy to open the scroll. All of creation is concerned. The universe seems to lack a champion and a leader. And then an elder, one of the 24 who's continuing to offer worship around the throne, he says to John, don't stop looking. Keep looking. Behold, there's more to be revealed. There's more curtains to pull back. And in verse 5, it says, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so here we're introduced to the lamb in heaven. And and we notice a few things. The the first thing we notice about this lamb in heaven is his authority. This lamb has authority. So as we look at the authority of the lamb, he, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is the root of David. The lion of Judah and the root of David are images that are very familiar to the early church and to Israel before it. Since the book of Genesis, the image of a triumphant king from the tribe of Judah had been a part of the messianic hope of Israel. In Genesis 49, when, when one of the patriarchs, Jacob, is giving a, his prophetic blessing over his children, he says to Judah in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The lamb is the long-awaited king, the ongoing king. And in Isaiah, we, we add to this understanding that within the tribe of Judah, the promised reign of the Messiah would come from the earthly family line of King David, whose father was Jesse. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 2, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Jesus the Lamb is a fulfillment of both of these images from the tribe of Judah and and the ancestor of of King David and a conqueror. John, you, you don't need to weep. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that that he can open the scroll. He can open its seven seals. History can continue. And here we come to the great paradox, which I think is so important for the church today, this great paradox of the heavenly throne, the great paradox of, of what true power is, the paradox of the Christian faith, really. For that split second, imagine what John thought he was going to see when he looked at the throne. What would you be thinking as you turn to look? You're told there's a lion, a conquering warrior. There's power, there's strength, a real threat. But he turns and he sees a lamb. A lamb, not just a sheep, but the most vulnerable of sheep. And not just the most vulnerable of sheep, but a slain lamb, a slaughtered lamb, literally. Why? Because this champion, this king, this promised Messiah is an affront to all earthly versions of power. Take everything you think about power and throw it out. Jesus conquered not by force, but by death, not by violence, but by martyrdom. 
And so as we look to the throne, as we look to the Lamb, we see the way of the Lamb. And I think this might have something to say to the church today that demands rights. The church today that demands influence. When we look at the Lamb, we are reminded not only of how our salvation comes about, but also how our salvation is to be lived out. There are many who lament when certain powers take office. Many, this week, in fact, many are concerned that, that this week, and, and perhaps rightly so, there should be lament at times, but the response of militant anger is not Christian and it's not lamb-like. The lion is a lamb. Theologian Michael Gorman says this, he says, the faithful death of the slaughtered lamb is both the source and the shape of our salvation. He goes on to say that the the slaughtered lamb is now not only our central and centering vision, but also the interpretive lens through which we read the remainder of the book of Revelation. Will the true church suffer if it decides to push up against the powers of the world represented in Revelation as Babylon? Yeah, yeah, it will. That's the way of the lamb. Will those who follow Jesus stand out when they push up against others who say they are followers of the lamb but have placed their trust in Babylon? Yes, that's the way of the lamb. Will the story end in our glorification and eternal reign in the presence of our king who, who, who vindicates and brings justice where, where everything that was wrong is made right? Yes, that's the way of the lamb. He is a conquering lamb. He is a champion lamb. In Revelation, the nature of power is being redefined. And this power, it comes from a release of rights, not a clinging to them. Sacrificial love, not a demand for protection. Jesus made it clear from the beginning of his ministry in what some might call, I've often called, the inauguration speech of the kingdom of God. And he proclaims, I'm bringing a reversal of what you think power is and what you ought to pursue in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. And we're all very familiar with this, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great, your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, do I want Christians to be persecuted, treated unfairly, lose rights in my heart? Of course, of course I don't want that. But Jesus seems to imply that there is blessing there, that we're in the right place when that kind of stuff goes on. We're in the place of the Lamb, not when we seek to hold power, but when we release power. That's the way of the lamb. Keep your eyes on the lamb. I tell you, when you take your eyes off the lamb, you will weep like John weeps, uncontrollably. You'll be swept by worry because when we look to the lamb, we find our fullest 
provision that cannot be satisfied anywhere else by any other government or any other ideology. We need to look to the provision of the lamb. I tell you, the idea of a slaughtered lamb is a strong theme when it comes to deliverance and protection for the people of Israel. It will forever symbolize God's power over every political power, God's final justice over every injustice, God's ultimate salvation and provision. Every year at Passover, the people of Israel were reminded that their deliverance from slavery to Egypt, the great political power of the day, their their birth of a nation, in fact, came to its climax with the sacrifice of a lamb. Moses, God's chosen mouthpiece to Pharaoh, demanding the release of the Israelites, gave warning to Pharaoh before bringing plague after plague, revealing God's power to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, but Pharaoh refused to listen. And then came the final horrible plague visited on Egypt, the death of the firstborn, the final and worst plague that God brought to Egypt also came to the people of Israel, but it came with provision with protection, with salvation. The people were given instruction that as the angel of death came over Egypt, he would be looking for the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes. And if it was there, the angel would pass over and they would be saved. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, it says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to enter your houses to strike you. Each year, Jews celebrate God's victory over Pharaoh by eating a Passover meal together to remind themselves of God's provision. And it's not by mistake that as we are about to enter into chapter upon chapter of plagues and judgments in Revelation that we see at the beginning a slaughtered lamb. A lamb delivered Israel from the climactic plague of Exodus and the champion lamb will protect his people from the plagues written in the book of Revelation. The victorious lamb brings a new Exodus, removing the power of sin from us and over us. John records this in his gospel, the pronouncement by another John, John the Baptist, who looked at Jesus and he said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. We see that in in John chapter 1 verse 29. Not just our individual sin, but the the dark power of sin over us. That's what we're going to see in Revelation. He has the power to move history forward. He has the right and the authority to open the scroll and reveal its message to all of creation. We know he has power more than just a history, more than just uh, an ancestry that links him to to Judah and King David. Why? Well, because verse 6 tells us that he has seven horns and he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent, sent out into all the earth. Horns represent power. Seven, as we've learned many times, means complete. He has complete power. He has seven eyes, representing the ability to see all things. He has all wisdom, all knowledge. Nothing escapes his sight. There is no injustice. There's no tear that he doesn't see. His spirit of comfort and counsel is everywhere. And with confidence, this lamb takes the scroll to the joy and the praise of all creation. In verse 8 of Revelation 5, it says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, representing all of creation, representing all of people of faith who follow God, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And here we see the worship of the Lamb. The elders and the four creatures we learned about uh, last week, they break into a new song with golden harps. But now, this is interesting, we have human voices represented at the throne room as as well. The the prayers of the saints represented in this scene as, as incense out of the bowl. Now, for many of us who grow up in the, in the Protestant church or not in church at all, we're not familiar, familiar with the bells and smells of, others, of other traditions. But even prior to Jesus establishing the church, incense has been a part of worship. Burning and watching the smoke rising has been associated with prayer. And as, as the smoke rises, so do our words of praise, intercession, confession, Supplication. It, it was a part of worship in the Jewish temple, and it was often referred to throughout Scripture. In Psalm 141, verse 2, it says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. In Luke chapter 1, the, the people are offering prayers outside the temple during the hour of incense offering because there was a, an association between the smoke of incense rising to heaven and the prayers of God's people kind of catching a lift up. In v- verse 8 of, of Revelation 5 is an invitation for the church to join in with the heavenly worship going on. That when we pray, our, our prayers join in on this, on this worship service. What a picture! I tell you, we, we grasp onto this picture, this image, this will enhance our prayer life. And we, we find a, a great prayer to be praying. If you're wondering what to pray, what kind of offering you want to offer up, we see this great prayer uh, in the worship of the elders and the creatures. In verses 9 to 10 of Revelation 5, it says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. You're in control of history, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, it says. This this kingdom... This kingdom that's established by the Lamb, that the community created through the cross of Jesus, through his suffering, it created a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-language, worldwide, historical, and eternal community. This is what you are invited to through Christ. This is the church that he has established. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3 verse 11 says, Here, here in this community, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's what we're seeing in this worship. What a, what a scene, what a, what a chorus to be invited into. I don't care what worship experience you've had before. It doesn't compare to this. But you know what? Even that, it's not enough. It's not enough because it seems that there's one more group And it's a large group that is compelled to add their voices to this worship that's going on around the throne. John looks again and he beholds. There's there's so much more to take in in verses 11 and 12. It says, then I looked, John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb 
who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This this circle of worship around the throne is, is getting bigger. We have to keep making room. It's getting bigger and bigger and everyone is joining in. Myriads and myriads, literally tens of thousands and tens of thousands. Uh, 10,000 was simply the the highest number that ancient Greek basically could come up with. (laughs) So John's fighting. It's this limitless crowd of angels. John is fighting to explain it. Can you imagine being captured by the image of the 24 elders and the mighty four creatures, comforted by the fact that the prayers of the saints are being heard, then to be overwhelmed by the singing or, or the proclamation of an uncountable number of angels saying, but not necessarily singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Here again, we have the number seven. Did, did you catch that? The, the lamb who was slain deserves worship from all of creation and his worship should be full and complete as well. Notice there are seven words of description here. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. He deserves it all and to the full and by all of creation. And so we see in John's vision that he, he pulls in every possible word to capture all of creation. He wants to make it clear, everyone high and low, everyone hidden and everyone seen needs to be in on this. In verse 13, it says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures, these four mighty creatures representing the four corners of the earth and all of creation said, amen. And the elders, the 24 elders fell down and worshiped. Everyone is invited to get in on this. For you and I now, his church, Those redeemed by the sacrificial lamb, our prayers of worship and praise join in the chorus and proclamation of his greatness. But one day, we will see it face to face. One day, we'll be standing next to the four creatures surrounded by the elders and the heavenly hosts. We'll we'll not simply offer prayers represented as incense. We will join the anthem of heaven. Church, he's worshiped not because he came as a conqueror, at least not the way we might think. He's worshiped not because he came in power, at least not like we might think. He is worshiped not because he he held on to his rights. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 2.6 that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something he had a right to and that he must hold on to because he's worshiped because he came as a sacrificial lamb. He came as a sacrificial lamb to take the brunt of the punishment for the sin of humanity, to take all that death could throw at him, to drink it to the full. And as Isaiah, the prophet said, he kept his mouth shut like a lamb to the slaughter. In Isaiah 53, verse seven, it says, speaking of the coming savior, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In fact, the, the fact of the lamb looking as if it was slain has implications for all who claim him as their king. 
who make him their first political allegiance. Craig Keener says it this way. He says, we like to gain political or social power and dictate God's terms from the top down. By contrast, Jesus shows us that the true victory comes in sacrifice and weakness, which force us to depend depend on God's vindication. We need to be reminded that victory lies with God and is accomplished as often through our apparent defeat as through our public triumph. Does that look like the way we wield power as followers of the Lamb? Do we seek to hold on to power? His life was not taken. He gave it. The Lamb gave up His rights for our salvation. That is the way of the Lamb who is worthy of all praise. Is that the way of His church? Or do we find ourselves seeking to wield and hold power in a way that reflects our world more than our Redeemer? In our homes, in our, in our jobs, our, our political landscape, what does power look like? Do we live like we believe the Lamb on the throne sees and the Lamb on the throne has all power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise? Or do we live frightened, weeping as if the Lamb is not on the throne? Does, does the church look frightened and, and is it scurrying to get power, to keep, to keep power? Does it, does it live with confidence even in the midst of Babylon, knowing that the lamb is a, is a conqueror and holds history in his hands? Are we conduits of peace while people are crying chaos? That, that is our call. That is the call of those who follow the lamb. So Jesus, we, we join with all of creation in honoring you, worshiping you, and orienting our lives and vision of reality around your throne. Jesus, you're worthy to take the scroll, to move history toward forward in your, in your wise judgment, to, to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Lamb of God, you have made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And so we say, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We join with the four living creatures and we say, amen. Church, I love you and I miss you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord give you peace. Amen.